Well, Ben mentioned the bottles for um, uh, that we're raising change in dollar bills or whatever else he's soliciting for this morning. Uh, but that's to go to a ministry called CareNet uh, in New York, uh, which uh, is actively uh, a way in which we can not only stand against abortion, those things like that, but, but to stand for something, do something in the active role of uh, providing means for, um, for a crisis pregnancy center. And uh, so that's one of the things we've been doing. We did that last year, collecting change through the bottles. You drop them off here. Uh, there's some brochures if you want to know more about that or talk to Melanie Luck. Uh, she'll be happy to explain it uh, more about that ministry to you. So uh, just keep that in mind as you um, bring in the change and those things. For those of you who take bottles, it's, it's to really display what we're for. We're for life. And, and um, uh, so uh, oftentimes we as Christians have been known what we're against. Um, so keep that in mind. Let me invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> chapter number six Hebrews chapter number six we're going to be looking at verses one through twelve and if you're visiting with us this morning um, we've been going through a series throughout the book of Hebrews on our Sunday morning uh, and our time together on Sunday mornings Um, and you may walk in here just out of the blue or have come this morning be like why in the world are we in chapter number six of Hebrews well because we're in chapter five last week and Naturally, it's kind of how that uh, plays out. Uh, so I hope uh, it's an encouragement and challenge to you uh, this morning as it has been to me this week. Um, let me just begin by reading verses 1 through verse 12 this morning, if you found your place. The Bible says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instructions about washing and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the, goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. I want to just invite you to pray with me just one more time this morning. Lord, you know each one of us more than we know ourselves. You promise that your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, we we just ask that you would speak to us through your word, encourage us, um, and deal with those areas in our life that needs to be dealt with. 
Lord, we thank you for this time we gather together this morning. We thank you for the promises that you have given to us. And so we just pray, Lord, work among us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you may have been following along in our reading, the dominant theme in this lands in the middle of this text, which takes much of our attention. And that is the subject found in verse number six of falling away. It isn't new to us, and and, uh, it has been something that has been common throughout church history. I I recalled a story, and it took me a while to find it, but uh, in AD 250, under the Roman emperor, uh, the church faced a severe series of persecutions, lasting somewhat uh, about a year. The emperor, trying to revive the Roman gods and the Roman way of doing things, uh, made a decree or passed a law that everyone should offer sacrifices regardless of their religions or, or any of those things. It was just something they had to do. Well, of course, you know, in the Christian faith, that was a problem because, you know, that was against what we believe, against what the early church believed. And so a lot of pressure was put on bishops and, uh, and other church leaders to capitulate, to kind of walk away, deny their faith, and, and offer these sacrifices or face persecution uh, sometimes torture or, or even death. Uh, several church leaders dying during that time. Uh, one writer states of that uh, during that time, because the church had not, uh, I guess, anticipated. They said apostles or apostates were many and martyrs were few. Well, the problem was is that if you offered up these sacrifices you had to receive this document called a labellus i hope i pronounced that right it's official document saying that you've offered your sacrifice now don't before you get off into left field and thinking about modern day application with that right and authorities were given the the or, or rulers were given the the authority to go all over the 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 roman empire to see whether or not you had your document whether or not you offered your sacrifice and cyprian lived during that age who had fled the church and 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 coming back they really had to deal with what do we do with those who denounce the faith those who walked away from the faith made a public show of of i am no longer following what i truly believe is right what do we do with this now, of course, the church was divided on that, but it's, not, it's an issue that we, kind of, that we see here in the text, here in A.D. 64 or, or in the 60s that the letter was written, a Jewish community facing all kinds of pressures to, to capitulate, to go back on that confession that they had once made. It wasn't just the Roman Empire. It wasn't just Nero who was about to start a, a widespread persecution on the Christians. It was their own countrymen. Uh, customs that they had been raised with, their very identity wrapped up in the fact that you're Jewish and you have Moses and the Old Testament and we do all this stuff, this is what we do. And family, and loved ones, friends that they've grown up with and, and by embracing Christ, many of them no, no doubt severed from those relationships and all of this pressure coming to them to, to walk away from the faith and to to say no to Christ and yes to the sacrificial systems or their old way of doing things. And that was really the issue that, that is of concern in the passage because in saying yes to this, 
and saying yes to the old way of doing things and the law and all the other stuff that they sought after, you say no to Christ and the writer is saying you can't have both. You can't offer up sacrifices to the appeasement of the worldly system and, and that satisfaction and have Christ at the same time. You can't. It brings us to this struggle of what we come to see in the warning of verses 4 through four through 8, really. But even before we look at verses 4 through 8, I just want to remind you, verse number 12 sets the heart or the tone of the preacher himself. And really the tone of the passage and the way we should see it. His desire is not just to scare the wits out of them. Sometimes we, we may want to feel like that's what it is when you read that. But his desire is that they would no longer be sluggish or they would not be sluggish in their following after Christ. Sluggish in their hearing, as he mentions earlier in chapter number 5, but that they would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. His desire, God's desire for us, is, is that culmination of everything he won for us, he bought for us in Jesus Christ, and that is at the hope of his return. That these believers would receive that. With that, he begins this, as we'll look at this morning, verses 1 through 3. He begins with the doctrine or, or the basics of the Christian faith. He already mentioned earlier in chapter number 5, if you look back, uh, lamenting over their childishness in verse number 12. Though th- by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Again, he's not saying this in a, in a, in a complimentary fashion. He's saying that when, when you, given the time and given the substance, the, the truth that you've heard and understood, he said you ought to have grasped this, understood this, and yet you, you don't. I'm going to start all back over with you and, and go back to the ABCs. And he says this is not something to boast in. In fact, you are, you're acting like children and not like grown uh, grown grown-ups in the faith so lamenting that in verse number one he begins with with giving us the foundation of the faith or at least the foundation of what they had been taught he said we must uh, or therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of christ and go on to maturity he goes on and says not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards god Now, let me just say this. He's not saying to us this morning, because it may be kind of a popular thing in our age, let's just walk away from anything that has to do with doctrine or truth or even the basics of the Christian faith until we can get into deeper things, into mysticism, you know, like reading your your horoscope and, 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 and all of that other stuff. He's not saying that at all. He's not talking about us disregarding the simplicity of the faith or or those foundational things which we have received in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that he has laid the foundation and no one else can lay it. It's not this repetition of laying the foundation over and over that's concerning him. It's the fact of how they're building upon the foundation. And, And that's the exhortation to us. It's not to lay the foundation over It is to take care and heed how you build upon the foundation of the basic teachings of Christianity. It is to grasp that knowledge and grasp that understanding and build upon it. Or as one person has said, it is to grasp a fuller appreciation and application of it in our lives. 
When we say basic and elementary, we don't mean that they, they're not deep. And they don't stand mysterious to us and bring us to a place of wonder, especially when we talk about the basic principle of salvation. As someone once said, it's so shallow that a children can play in and so deep that an elephant can drown in. I think we ought to look at it that way. It explains to us what our faith is and what Christ has done for us. And that's his concern. Verse number 12, he speaks of them, the oracles of God, as if, as if these, these Jewish believers were looking at the Old Testament through the lens void of Christ himself. And they were seeing the priesthood and, and rejoicing in all the laws and all of that stuff, and they missed the very substance of what all of it was for. God leading up to this climax of Jesus Christ being a fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the sacrificial system, of all of the law. And, and, and in doing so, he's saying what you've grabbed hold of is, is just a shadow of this. The substance is found in Jesus Christ. You see that in verse number one, when he says that, that we're not again to leave this or we're to leave this elementary doctrine of Christ the heart of the matter, the key, if you want to say, of your Old Testament is found in Jesus Christ. And to miss it, to miss him, is to miss God's plan and will altogether. Now let's just list these few statements about the basics of the faith that he mentions here, verses 1 and 2, to get a grasp of what they were taught, they had been taught. First he mentions in verse number one, he says, we're not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. And that's the simple message of Jesus when he came out of the wilderness, wasn't it? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist, which Jesus said was the greatest prophet, he said the same thing, didn't he? In the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Christian message to the Jew was to turn away from, from trying to earn the favor of God in all the relentless ways you're trying to pursue him, which leads to futility because you'll never satisfy a holy God. You'll, you'll never be able to deal with sin in your own way and through all of these systems. They're not designed or able to do that. And so they were to turn from these, these dead works, as he calls them, and turn to God himself. Repent from their own way. In our modern culture, which we're not brought up in that, that kind of way for us, it would be return from your own arrogance, thinking you don't need a Savior. Return from your own arrogance of thinking your good works will get you to heaven. Return from all of that. Return from those dead works and turn towards, secondly, he says, faith in God. We don't turn to religion and just believe in religion or some good idea. Or some feeling or, or whatever it may be. Not, not that feelings are bad. We all have them. Some more than others. But nevertheless, we all have those. He says, no, you, you turn towards God. And we would say in our modern culture, I think it's right for us to emphasize not just God. Because God is just, you know, generic talk in our world. I like to thank God for this. I like to thank God for that. And, and you know by the person's life and the way they live, what they stand for, they don't even know God. And yet you still see this kind of God recognition. And really in our modern day, God is not offensive at all. We're okay with that. But Christ is a different story, isn't it? Jesus is a different picture. So we turn from our own ways. We turn from our own works. And we, we turn to Christ, believe in Christ. And, and that's a message for you this morning. If you've never been saved, what does the gospel tell you, call you to do? 
He says, turn from your futility and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe. That's what he calls for us. They that believe, he gives the right to become the sons of God. Even those who believe on his name, we're to believe. Those who believe shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is by faith that we receive justification. It is by faith that we receive the blessings and the promises of God. Believing isn't very hard, is it? And yet it is because it's so simple. Because it reminds us that it is not by the works in which we've done, but it is solely relying upon the works of someone else. Believe. Naturally, the, the gospel call for us to be in Christ and to be a Christian it is a doctrine of repentance and faith in Christ, faith in God. But secondly, or thirdly, he mentions not only this, he mentions instructions about washing. Of course, it has that Old Testament theme. And maybe he is referring to the washings in the Old Testament. A lot of people think he's, he's connecting that with the doctrine of baptism or the washing away of sins and what all of that represented in the New Covenant or the New Testament teaching. Fourthly, they taught and they had been taught the laying on of hands. You see that in the priestly sacrifices, but you also see it in the book of Acts. As, as the Holy Spirit came upon him, there was a laying on of hands in the early church that manifested that work of the Holy Spirit among them. Also seen in the commissioning of ministers. He goes on in verse number 2, not only laying on the hands, but the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Can I just say this morning, that ought to be essential to Christian teaching. If you're a Christian this morning, there ought to be something, a joy-filled anticipation of the resurrection of the dead. And sometimes people paint Christianity as some kind of gloom and, 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 and miserable kind of walk. No, it's, it's joy and anticipation. The fact that we have new life in Jesus Christ and a blessed hope of his return. They were taught that. They were taught of an inheritance to anticipate. This is the same thing we're taught today, that we have this thing to anticipate the resurrection of the dead. But also he says in verse number, or, or verse number two, he says not only the resurrection of the dead, but also eternal judgment. That, that those who do not obey God, they do not obey the gospel, will be cast out into eternal judgment forever and ever. You say that isn't fair. And sometimes we, we think of it that way, and yet there is no other way into salvation. And if we close the door and reject that one way of salvation, there's no other way left for us. We really receive what we want, and that is an eternity without God. Eternity without God. And he says at the end of this, this basic teaching, what they had learned, and to build upon this, and, and in verse number 3, he says, and we will do this if God permits mainly move on into maturity but before he does before he moves on what we would call maturity he deals with this strong warning we find in verses four through eight or let me just read verses four through six for us this morning he says for it is impossible in the case of those who had once been enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, then to have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. You could really, you could really squeeze this verse into two statements found in verse number four and verse number six. And it's this, for it is impossible... 
to restore them again to repentance. Now, the rest of that kind of feels the center of that, what he's talking about there in that subject, and, and which, might I add, is a very difficult, one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, as most people would agree. And let me just give you a few ways that people have looked at this before we can walk through these verses together. One, people look at this through the hypothetical view because we have to ask the question, who in the world is he talking about? Who's being referred to as they that... Uh, they will not again be brought to repentance. Who's the warning for? And, and in the, the statement, some would say it's just hypothetical, as if it were possible, and it's not possible, so don't worry about it. And that's probably a, maybe an uncharitable way of saying it, but that's the point of what they're trying to say. It's impossible to fall away from the faith, so kind of securing the fact that we have, we have security of our salvation. It dismisses the fact why God has given us such a strong warning in his word altogether if you, if you look at it through that lens. The second way we approach this passage, one is given to us that, that he is referring to genuine believers in Christ. Those who, uh, those who have put their faith, you see the experience in the few verses we'll look at in just a moment, but, but um, they, they put their faith in Christ, and, and so he's speaking about those in one way that, that can easily lose their salvation. We have denominations in our area who hold to this idea that, that you can lose your salvation, what you're saved, and, and, and you're securing God, but, but, but careful. And someone once said, no one might take you out of God's hands, but you can surely jump out. I think that's a wrong interpretation as we look at the whole of God's word and others look at this. Well, maybe he's talking to real Christians, the fact that we can lose our eternal reward. I think both of those don't merit the reality of the strength of the warning that he gives here. The third view is that he's dealing with those who are not truly saved. They're professing believers without truly being saved. They, they look at all points to the outside world and the rest of the church as if they, they, they know Christ, they're following Christ, they're in agreement, but they've truly never been converted. They, they may be at one time standing on the edge, and yet they are living without true faith in God himself. And one of the reasons I am in agreement with that point of view is, is his stress on faith earlier. If you look back in chapter number 3, look back with me if you would. He refers to your fathers have put me to the test and they saw my work for 40 years in verse number uh, verse number nine. He goes on to say in verse number 11, and I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? He's speaking about the children of Israel who had been in the wilderness and they'd been with God and seen all the mighty works that God has done. If you go first Corinthians 10, he says that same experience of God working among them and yet God was not pleased with them and he says they will not enter my rest we might ask ourselves well why does God speak to them this way he goes on to tell us in verse number 12 doesn't he take care brothers lest there be any uh, be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but the root of it is the unbelieving heart they did not believe God they did not believe God 
Verse 19, he goes on and says the same thing. So we see that they were unable to enter, speaking of that rest, because of unbelief. Verse number 2 of chapter number 4, For good news came to us just to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those that listen over and over, emphasizing the problem that he has been explaining has been a problem of not believing God. Not believing God. God, with that in mind, let's just look at these believers or look at these people that he mentions here four through six. He says, first of all, he says they had once been enlightened. The language means that they had once at one time had their eyes open. It's a one-time thing. They, they've come to see that Christ was their Messiah, that he was the one God had chose. They come to see how all the pieces would fit together in the puzzle, and, and they come to that understanding. We, we use the language of that in our day. We have our eyes open to this, or, or we, we've been brought to where we come to that understanding. And so you see that they'd experienced this in reference to the gospel. Uh, the second thing he mentions, not only does he see those who had once been enlightened, they have tasted the heavenly gift. And by taste, he, he's using metaphorically language. I think you know that. Some refer to this as them. They, they were those who, who had taken communion. I don't know if that is, uh, that is exactly what he's meaning by this. It's very vague. He's saying is they, they've tasted something of the heavenly gift of God. Now, he's not differentiating whether they only took a taste of it, you know, just a sip and we decided we didn't like it. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe like you do with some things, you just take a bite of it and say, no, thank you for the rest of it. He's not saying that. He uses the language earlier saying that Christ in chapter number two tasted death for every minute. There's an experience that he's referring to here when he comes to talk about they have tasted this heavenly gift. Third, he goes on and says that they have shared... In the Holy Spirit. That means to partner with or come alongside with the Holy Spirit. They know something of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. Well, this conviction of sin or whatever it may be, they have that familiarity of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, he reminds us not only that, verse number five, he says, they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Maybe they got a coffee cup with a verse on it that they really like. Now, I, I make that small little jest of that, but, but you know how that is. We find those passages in the Word of God, they're intriguing. I know some people, when they get into reading Revelation, they just get all caught up in that, and they get all excited about that. Forget about the here and now, but let's just get all wrapped up in that and living. You know, and, and there is this, this taste of it. They, they've experienced it. Maybe they, they've enjoyed it or whatever it is that they have done. There is this, this taste of the goodness of the word of God. Let me just say this as a, as a side note. Can I say the word of God is good? The Bible says, open my eyes and maybe hey, behold wondrous things out of God's law. Oh, that God would give us eyes to see that and, and a heart to know that, that the word of God is life-giving. But he goes on and says, uh, fifthly, not only they tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. How do you explain that? That's probably rhetorical. I don't expect you to answer that to me, but I, I guess I should give you an answer the best I understand, right? 
And they've seen something of the heaven, the kingdom of God breaking through on the kingdom of darkness. We see it often when we see someone come to Christ, don't we? God's kingdom expanding and spreading as we see the power of God working and, and, and people being transformed into the image of God and, and the gospel going forward and changing entire societies. It's, that's the kingdom of God breaking through in this dark world. There'll be a fullness of that one day. That's our anticipation. That's what we hope for. They say, here are these, they've experienced something of this. The gospel came to them, not just in word only, but in power and demonstration. They saw the evidence of the, of, the, of the work of God in ways in which we have not. And tying back to that old illustration of the children of Israel walking along in the wilderness, seeing the Red Sea part, <laughs> walking across on dry ground sun and, and being covered with a cloud in the, in the sky you, you see a flame at night and manna on the ground and all this stuff that, that they have seen I think there's a connection there and, and, and by all descriptions as we look at this it, we would say well this is truly a, a, a truly converted individual it's a true Christian and again people disagree on that in one way or another but you still have to struggle with what he says after that Verse number six, he says, if they had all of this privilege and all of this blessing, all of this grace gifted to them, and if they should fall away, if they should fall away, the word simply means to forsake or turn away from, or to fall away as the word just rightly is used. We look at it most uh, in the theological terms of apostasy, most people refer to that coming out of this passage of Scripture. In fact, if you Google apostasy, this will be one of the passages of Scripture that will most likely come up among others, and mainly out of Hebrews. Um, Lane describes this in his commentary on this. He says, it is a decisive commitment to apostasy. He says, going back to the Septuagint, the turn had reference to the expression of a total attitude reflecting deliberate and calculated renunciation of God. Here he's speaking about those who had received all of this blessing and to fall away, to step away, to, to renounce God altogether. Now let me just say this, what he's not speaking about. He's not speaking about people that just go sin, that are saved and they sin and they mess up and they stumble along the way. He's not speaking about that. He's not even really speaking about backsliding, you know, hot and cold and all that, although that should worry us. It should be a serious thing in our life if that's the way we're living the Christian life. How, how truly um, confident are we in the gospel and what Christ has done for us when we live that way? Here it seems to refer to those who, who make a public and open decision to step away from the faith. To step away from the faith altogether. Let me just give you two examples of this in, in the Bible. And you know there's a multiple examples of this in society. So you can just find those on your own and, and just follow facebook and twitter and all that other stuff and you'll see plenty of this go on but the first one is and the most infamous is that of judas iscariot you know when jesus said one of you will betray me no no one said it's judas hey peter it's judas don't worry about it 
No, they said, is it I, Lord? And here is one with all signs, outward signs and demonstration that he was walking with Christ, that he was in and in and, and all for this and in all reality, a demonstration of his rejection of Christ and betraying him showed that he, his heart was not with him. He did not believe him. A manifestation of his unbelief. The second one we might find, if you open your Bibles to the book of Acts, turn back with me, another example of this. Book of Acts, chapter number 8. A great revival in the book, of, or a great revival in Samaria had gone on and the preaching of Philip and it was transforming that, that city. There was one there which, which is a passage that always kind of blows your mind to see what's going on with this guy and and was there at simon the magician the, the bible says that the people thought he was a big deal some big thing from the gods he had actually some suggest that he had even claimed to be deity or deified and that's why he did all of his magic tricks and and stuff that he did but but with this in verse number nine it says but there were a man named simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of samaria saying he himself was somebody great verse number 12 he goes on and says but they believed philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of god in the name of jesus christ and they were baptized both men and women verse 13 even simon is that remarkable is a guy who was leading these people astray and at the preaching of philip even simon himself believed and after being baptized he continued with philip and seeing the signs of great miracles performed he was amazed he was he was dumbfounded Awed, brought to silence. It was an amazing thing to see what God was doing in that place. And yet even after having been said that he believed and was baptized and standing and amazed of all of the, the work of the Holy Spirit among him, he looks to Peter and he says, give me that power. How much money do you want? How much money do you want to give me the power to be able to do what you do? Peter rebukes him in verse number 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with mercy. The ESV is very generous in the way they say it. Uh, and the way it's really uh, emphasized there, May you perish with your gold. And he says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if it possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter describing here Simon, one who is still wrapped up in the bond of iniquity. So you see, it seems as we go back to Hebrews chapter number 6, the sobriety of the warning that he gives to us, those who have had such... Uh, such privilege and grace poured out, such familiarity with the things of God, and then just up and decide, you know, after, after somewhat of a commitment to walk away and say, no, thank you, I'll just go my own way. I'll go back to the sacrifices and the other things that goes on. And that brings us back to the word that he said in verse number four, right? He says, it is impossible for those who have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their harm, 
holding him up to contempt. Is that a very sober warning? Saying to take take this idea, this temptation that the church is facing at that time, maybe some in the church had already faced it, to take that seriously? As they were standing uh, thinking to themselves to renounce Christianity. And yeah, you're right. It was, it was nonsense. He was no Messiah. He was no Savior. And, and, and you're right. Moses is, is who we're looking at as our Savior and all this. And, and to deny the very Lord of glory. In such an open and public way to that which I just got it wrong. Made a mistake. I was, I was dumbfounded. I was young. I was immature, whatever it may be. And you see the implications in our day, don't you? As you, as you watch TV or, or click through your news feed and another Christian who, who in some kind of ministry, some kind of open spotlight comes to say, you know, the thing about Jesus is a little narrow-minded. Not sure about his death and really don't believe in hell and, and all the other stuff. And, and, and little by little you see this erosion to where there is no Christ in it at all. Open, public denial of the faith. And he says all of this brings this hard saying. As they, as they crucify again the Son of God to their own harm. Holding him to contempt. Rejecting him and bringing shame upon him. In reality, they're saying his death was not sufficient. His blood was spilled in vain. His cross was his own folly. He's not worth believing, not worth following. His prayer is too weak to save us. There's another way. There's a better way, a more loving way. There's a more, more historical way. We don't need Christ. It is decided with the very enemies of Christ. Who... When he would come to the world, the world would crucify and reject him. That's a sober word which brings F.F. Bruce to say this. Speaking about those not able to return to repentance. He says, God has pledged himself to pardon all who truly repent. But scripture and experience alike suggest that it is impossible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life where they can no longer repent. That's very sober. Now I know the Bible says what is impossible with man uh, is possible with God. But we also come to know that they will not be brought back to favor with God and to repentance while they hold the Son of God in open shame and full rejection of him. And he gives us an illustration of this, of the seriousness in this, in kind of a word picture, since, since we, are, we like that kind of stuff. Verse number 8, he says, but if, verse number 7, he says, For if the land has drunk in the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing of God. In other words, the rain comes, the blessings of God, and it produces good fruit and, and shows that it is blessed by God. Verse number 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Speaking of that eternal judgment of God. Someone has noted this, and I think it is worth mentioning, as, as many have commented on this statement here in verse number 8. They bring out that, that, that wording of being near to being cursed. 
maybe the preacher is in the midst of this hard saying, holding a little light of hope uh, to those who are, are standing on the cusps of denying Christ and denying their faith and walking away from it altogether. Uh, there remains hope near, but not yet, not final. But the only hope that we have, and I can say this this morning, no matter how you understand this passage, no matter how you flesh it out, and you may disagree with half of what I said today, the only hope you have this morning is if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And to reject him outside of him, there is no hope. And if you have become familiar with him, walked somewhat loosely committed to the Christian faith, what you turn away from is life. And what you turn to is damnation. There's nothing in the world that can save you, ultimately satisfy you, and carry beyond your grave. Nothing. Nothing. And his desire is that his people would go on and possess the inheritance of the promise. Not to be caught up in the satisfying of of just the pressure that is built upon him and tempting going back to Judaism so they won't be made fun of or persecuted or be put to death and, and have that momentary ease of pain. He's saying there's something far greater at stake here. That's an eternal situation to consider. Because what you turn away from is life. There's no life found in anyone else. There's no other mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. That's why he says, not just using God talk, he's saying to these Jewish believers, this is God's will. This is believing in God. That is receiving Christ. And to turn back is to bring open shame to Christ and prove unbelief in God. And prove unbelief in God. But he doesn't leave us with this prolonging our agony of this sober warning in verses four through nine or verses four through eight. He lays the foundation of the basic principles and he warns of this danger, maybe danger for some. And it is true that that no matter some depending on where you are in your Christian walk, this verse hits us in different ways, right? And it ought to that way, some harder than others, but in all times it speaks to us and causes us to do some self-reflection. And yet we're not to live in a constant state of doubt. We're not to live constantly doubting to God. What he's doing is, is the same thing he's doing to us this morning. He's, he's pulling us along. This is the temptation of walking away and living in unbelief. What he's saying is, is come fully and believe, trust, rest, believe in God. Have faith in him, rest in him. And, and that's what he's doing as he goes on and encourages these believers. As he, he says in verse number 9 through 12, and I love that. Though we speak in this way and it's hard, yes, it's difficult, yes. But he says, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. What is he saying? He's saying we believe better things in you. Things that belong to salvation. Here's a man that knew his congregation. And though he speaks in one sense with harsh words or hard words in one way, it's not out of hatred. It's bringing along. And yet he comes back to recognize the fruit that God had brought in their life. He goes to remind you that we'll never be perfect in this life. None of us. In moments we can be sluggish, right? Amen. About five of us agree with that. 
And yet the pastor steps back and recognizes, oh, but I see the work of God among you. I'm assured of better things in your life. Things that belong to salvation. As much could be said about this, but he gives us two things, I think. One in his motivation we'll look at it in a moment but the first is as he's assured of them not to be in doubt to walk in believing of god and not in the frustration which doubt brings in our life he says i see your labor of love look at verse number 10 for god is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do it is amazing that he turns away from personal experience I'm not saying that's wrong. But he turns away from personal experience. He says, I see things that belong to salvation. And what does he do? He says, I see that in the evidence of, of the way you interact with others. Your activity, your work, the way you love one another. And out of all the things you could say, all the things that you could bring out of this, he doesn't say all of what you could recite and and all of what you could say. And and if you could name all the books of the Bible and all those things that are good, they're helpful, that's that's nice, you know where the Bible are. But he says, I see the evidence of God's saving grace in your love for one another. Love for one another. Not only how they had loved one another, as he may have been among them during that time, but as they still continue to do so. And notice how he says in that verse, verse number 10, he says that you have shown this work of love for his name. For his name. You know, the pagan gods and many of the pagan religions, you offer up your sacrifices and food and all this other stuff to the temple or this, this shrine or statue, whatever it was, because it was believed that the gods survived off what you gave them, what you offered up. And that's how they continued on ceaselessly by your offerings and sacrifices. You know, God doesn't need anything we have to offer. He will continue on without us. And our acts of love, we see here, demonstrated that he accounts those acts of love, not directly to himself, but those acts of love we give to another, that he, he says, no, that is for my name's sake. He's not unjust, or, or another way of saying it, he recognizes those things as being for himself. For himself. He says, I, I recognize your work of love, that which you've done for one another, which is really, as you have done that, you've done it for me. You've done it for me. He points out our benevolence and acts of love is uh, dedicated to him as to those who bear his image. Thus our gifts of mercy and our care are not able to be spent on him except through those who bear that image. Those through whom care for his people. But we know there's much can be said about this, and, and maybe we'll look at this again next week, this latter part, evidence of salvation. But he reminds us, how will men know that you're my disciple? Because you have love for one another. And I am thankful for many of you as I've seen that. Some of you I don't know, and you've done it, and I've not seen it, but many of you as I've seen you love one another and love the body of Christ and care for one another. What a joy it's been to see the community come together and do that recently. But not just recently, over and over and over, those sacrifices of love being poured out because he first loved us. So we ought to also, and not only ought to, we've seen evidence of that over and over of loving one another.
The warnings of God are given to us to, to maybe make us sit up straight. Some seasons of life, we need to hear them stronger than maybe in other seasons. And yet they're here to remind us that the word of God and the authors of the Bible, the preachers are calling us to, to put your faith and trust in Christ. Live out of that faith and trust in him because there's no life found anywhere else. And if you don't know that this morning, that's not where you're at. Let me just invite you to come. Right where you are, just bow, bow your head and go to the Lord and God in prayer and say, God, as the old sinner prayed, beating upon his chest, forgive me. I am a sinner. And the Bible says if you come by faith, repenting from your sins and your ways, that he will in no wise, never, ever, ever cast you out. But he receives such who come to Christ lowly and humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time we gather together. Thankful for all the those here this morning. And God, I know I see faces and expressions, but God, you see the hearts. You know where we're at. You know all that goes on in our life and what we're dealing with. Oh, it's my desire that everyone here this morning, and not just them, but, uh, but everyone they come in contact with would wholeheartedly put their faith in God and put their faith in Christ and that they would live, live that out. Lord, I don't know if that's the case. Only you do. God, I pray if someone here doesn't know you, that they would even at this moment say, Lord, you're right, I believe. I believe. And God, I pray for each of us that, that are sluggish in our Christian walk. The whole purpose of this prodding along is so that we would we would not be so, but that we would be diligent with faith and patience that we would live out until we reach that inheritance. Help us to faithfully do so, knowing that that is only produced by your grace. Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.